Cinematchups podcast. We are your hosts, Kim Kohler and Sean Rodenberg, and we are here to bring you another one verse 16 battle for our movies from Books Bracket Challenge. Today we have for you Sideways, which comes in at a 97% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes, and that is our one seed for this week. Based on the 2004 novel by Rex Pickett, Interesting enough, the novel remained unpublished until Alexander Payne, the director of this movie, bought the film rights. So the novel actually released a month before the film premiered. So the screenplay was adapted from the book, but the book was not out until a month before the movie was out. So they came out around the same time, which is really interesting. We've had a couple like that. Yeah. I think most of the other ones have been, though, that they were based on documentaries and then someone wrote a book after the movie came out, summarizing the movie. So this is the first one where it's based on this novel purely, but the novel was not released years before the movie came out. So super interesting. 2004 must have been a huge year for wine. It is. And speaking of wine, we decided it is a podcast about Sideways, which is heavily about wine and going to wine country. And we are sitting here drinking a 2002 Rapasso from Italy. Um, don't think it's really fancy. This is from a big box of wine from my parents' basement that was stored improperly for years. So it doesn't taste the best, but Are you guys ready? We feel fancy. <laughs> <sighs> smells like grapes. Yep. Time for the taste. This is not an ASMR video, by the way. Tastes like grapes. Yeah. So if we get a little bit more wordy or sluggish either way it could go either way throughout this podcast you know that it is the uh 2002 poorly stored and aged red wine that we are drinking but we figured we couldn't do a sideways podcast without it so why not and we're in the final home stretch of this podcast so who cares so i have a plan for this podcast and it's to make sure that both of our glasses are finished by the time that the podcast is done well depends on who does more talking i guess So keeping with Sideways, Sideways was nominated for five Oscars, including Adapted Screenplay, which it won an Oscar for, and then was also nominated for for Best Picture, Best Supporting Actor for Thomas Hayden Church, Best Supporting Actress for Virginia Madsen, and Best Director. So it was the only movie nominated for Best Picture that year that didn't have any lead actor nominations for the movie. Seems messed up because I think he was actually the, the best one. Paul Giamatti. Yeah. I would disagree with you, but okay. Sure. Interesting. Yeah. So this movie really interesting because we hadn't seen it until now, but I remember it when it came out in 2004 as just being a movie that I felt like my mom and dad had seen and like a bunch of people's moms and dads liked because it was about these late 30, early 40 year olds who were really coming into their future and what they wanted to do. So I think a lot of people in that age group really identified with it. And also those ladies who wear the it's wine o'clock somewhere t-shirts around and carry their tote bags. So this movie I know was really, really popular when it came out, did really well at the box office. So really fun for us to watch this 16 years after it came out. And then we have it up against this week, Dark Places, which comes in at a 23% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Based on the 2009 novel by Gillian Flynn, who also wrote Gone Girl, was made into film in 2015. Was not a box office success, did not get great reviews, but really interesting, I guess, production-ish type of fact about this movie that I had no idea about when I had read this, but I didn't know Shirley's throne was actually 
born in South Africa. So when she was 15, she was living with her mother in South Africa and her drunken alcoholic father came in one night, attacked them, fired a gun at both of them. Charlize fled the house and then her mother ended up killing her father in self-defense. So really incredible story, but also really plays into the plot of this movie really well. You have Charlize Theron's character who was a child who had a abusive father who came around from time to time and was raised by her mother and her mother ends up dying. But, you know, there's not a whole ton of actual overlap, but the themes feel very similar. So really interesting for her to pick up a movie like this that has so much overlap with some things that were really traumatic that happened in her childhood. So super interesting, but we'll get more into some of the things about dark places. We're going to get more into the strengths and weaknesses of both of these movies and the themes and battle it out until we have one come out on top. So going into the theme, we found one theme that related to both of the main characters in this movie. And this was a hard one to really find, but once we found it, we're like, Oh yeah, that works. So everyone else in these movies, all the secondary characters, all of the people they meet seem to be way more invested in the main character's life. The main characters being Paul Giamatti's character, Miles, and then Charlize Theron's character, Libby Day, in both of these movies. And all of these secondary characters seem to be more invested in both Miles and Libby's lives than they are in their own lives. So just some background on both of these movies. And I guess we'll just start with one and talk about it. We can start with Dark Places. And so it is about Libby Day, who was a survivor of this mysterious murder in Kansas where her mother and her two sisters were murdered. And then her brother was not seen. And then... Libby confessed that her brother was the one who killed them, even though she didn't specifically see that and is also just very confused about what actually happened herself because she had run away from the house and was hiding in like a shed out in the yard. So then we flash forward to Libby in her late 30s and she's basically been living a life collecting money from people who are donating money to her. Basically living a GoFundMe life of people who are like, I'm so sorry for your story. Let me send you clothes. Let me send you money, all of this stuff. And then eventually runs out of money and runs into Lyle, played by Nicholas Holt, who has what's called a kill club. And it's all of these people who investigate these murders or things that don't add up. So they basically pay her for information. And she goes along this journey of talking to her brother, Ben, who's in prison. I have a question. Yeah. Sorry to cut you off. Would you join the Kill Club? You seem like the type of person who would. I think it's a fun idea, but also those people were oddly passionate. They seem like the type of people that send letters to people in prison and then get married to them a year later. So you'd be a part timer. Yeah, I would be invested in the justice part of it and the investigatory part of it, but not in how passionate some of these people feel about some of the crimes. I think it's just a little too much. Like that one character, Margot was her name. I think it was Margot. It started with an M and she was like, you should talk to your brother. He's in prison. He's a nice guy. And it's like, you're creepy. Yeah. Some of those people are way too passionate and cool. More power to have some hobbies you like, but I, I couldn't get too into it. But yeah. So anyway, so she's a part of this kill club. She gets paid by the people in the kill club. 
to reopen this investigation because they find out they're going to shred all the evidence from it in two weeks. And so she has to figure out who the actual killer is and how this all actually went down. And then we have Sideways, which plays out in a much different way. We have Miles, who is this middle-aged guy who is a middle school teacher He writes books, but his books haven't hit. They haven't published. He's really passionate about wine, knows a lot about wine, drinks a lot of wine, and just is a guy who lives... Divorced. Divorced, depressed, anxious, takes a lot of medication for that, gets in the way of some of his friendships, and he's just kind of miserable and going through life. And he has this best friend, Uh, played by Thomas Hayden Church, whose name is Jack. And Jack is pretty much the opposite. He's getting married and he's an actor and lives in a big house and has a lot of success and people know him. He's very charismatic, but he also goes with Miles to a bachelor weekend week. And while they're there, Jack just wants to have sex with a bunch of women and be pretty much just come back. So they are but wants miles to join him. Yeah. But wants this. miles to have like this fun bachelor week with him and makes comments about his anxiety and depression getting in the way of that. So overall, this movie is a comedy, but there's also a lot of middle age coming of age in it. Yes. So then with miles too, the portion of him that fits our theme is that this book that he's publishing, that he's writing all of his like relationships being divorced for a year. These are things that he almost finds comfort in the misery of not progressing on. And everyone else around him is telling him constantly throughout the movie, how good his writing is, how good his book is, how incredible it is that he knows so much about wine, how he needs to move on. And he could go and date some of these ladies and go and talk to them more. And they're interested in him and they like him. And everyone has a plan that they carve out for miles. There's even one time when Jack says to Miles that they should move and open up their own vineyard and he can do the wine part and Jack will do the business part. So everyone does have these ideas that they're pushing onto Miles. Yeah. And Miles is just the type of guy and that's set up from the very beginning. And I guess we can go into strengths and weaknesses on this because one of my strengths talks a little bit more about this theme. And it's set up really well from the beginning that Miles is just this guy who lacks a lot of initiative, does a lot of things last minute. And you see the very opening scene of this movie of him drunk, passed out, Somebody calls him. He's like, I'm on my way, but he isn't actually on his way until he takes a shit, takes a shower, eats, stops and gets a coffee. Like he really takes his time, even though he's like, oh, my God, I'm 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 on my way. I was busy with work. We've all been there before, though, right? For sure. But that just sets up how he is as a person. And then it continues because he picks up Jack and then they stop at his mom's on the way to Napa Valley and in the parking lot. And this is one of my favorite things in this movie because it sets his character up so well in the parking lot. He's like, oh, hey, Jack, pull the flowers out of the back seat. And Jack didn't know they were going to his mom's and the mom didn't know that he was coming over. So she shows up in her pajamas at the front door. But as he's walking up to the front door, he's pulling a birthday card out of his pocket to sign 
as he's walking up to the front door. And it just shows you that this guy is someone who does everything last minute, who does everything kind of impulsively, who doesn't really have a set path on where he's going or ways to get there and is just kind of hoping for the best throughout the whole movie. So I love that it started with that and that you just get a really strong feel for who Miles is as a person throughout this whole movie And the character development in this is just so fantastic throughout the whole movie. I have a strength that also leans into Miles as how the movie portrays him. And I just think this movie nails being alone. And I know you you've lived alone. But in my personal experience, uh, when I lived alone, it was very lonely. And you can see that in Miles and just how lonely he is and how he almost is content with being alone after his divorce because you said it jack is his best friend jack was his freshman college roommate that's not really like a best friend you know we don't really know about the relationship there on out though or how that evolved through the years or what they did together but i hear what you're saying i think that it's also a testament to both of their personalities and characters that they are the only two people going on this bachelor week together that there's no one else they would have invited. They kind of hate everybody else who doesn't act in their own self-interest. Well, Jack seems like he's there because Miles will hang out with him, but Jack is a total dick. And Miles seems like he's there because he needs some type of human interaction and that's where he's going to get it. Otherwise, Miles is pretty much okay with not hanging out with anybody, especially because when they get on the trip, Jack ditches him and he is doing everything just by himself. Because it's such a great contrast of characters too, because Jack is very self-centered, very, they're both impulsive in different ways, right? Jack is self-centered and very fueled by instant gratification and getting what he wants. He has a plan for what he wants to do during that week and he tries to do it. And then you have Miles who has no self-esteem, no confidence and doesn't act on impulse at all, wants to plan things according to what he wants to do. So they're both selfish in that way. Like, I don't think Jack's ideal bachelor week is going to wine country at all. No, but I don't, this goes back to, I don't think Jack has a lot of friends because he's such a dick. So when he makes plans with Miles, it kind of ends up being what Miles wants to do instead of what he wants to do. Absolutely. But they both have these redeeming qualities too, where Jack tries so hard to get Miles to come out of his shell because he witnesses the potential that he has and not wanting Miles to just stop his life. He does it in some dickish ways sometimes, like making fun of his depression and anxiety and being like, you won't ruin this day for me. We're gonna get laid and have fun. Like that's the type of person that Jack is. But in a weird way, they complement each other in the best way. And you can see why they've remained friends or why they're good friends. Yeah. And going back to the introduction that you did when I said Paul Giamatti was my favorite character in this and you said that you disagreed, I still feel like he's the best character in this movie. It's interesting and it's something that I will touch on when we get to weaknesses. I think he's good, but I also think Paul Giamatti is typecasted as the exact guy he played in Sideways all the time. He's always the guy who's a little bit anxious, a little bit depressed, kind of a downer, kind of pessimistic, 
I feel like I've seen that Paul Giamatti character quite frequently. Sure. But also one other thing that I loved about this movie is just watching his face while he did stuff because it wasn't just his face while he talked, but it was his facial expressions when someone said something to him. I think it just set the whole character over the top. Yeah, I agree. I don't think he was bad in this movie. Let me clarify that. It's not that I thought he was a bad actor or anything like that. I just think Thomas Hayden Church was much better and much more interesting. I thought the complete opposite. Well, agree to disagree. I have a couple more strengths I wanted to touch on. And one of them, I just wanted to go back to what I said in the intro about the book and the book not being published until Alexander Payne, who directed the movie, picked up the publishing rights to it. And the overlap between that and a specific storyline in this movie, and that is that Miles has a book that he wrote. It's a fiction book. He's telling everybody about it throughout the entire movie, and he's trying so hard to get it published. And then towards the end of the movie, he finds out that the book won't be published and his agent or whoever it is tells him it's just one of those unfortunate cases of a novel that doesn't have a home. And I thought that it was interesting thinking about this novel and how this novel found its home with Alexander Payne, who was so passionate about this project and passionate about making a movie out of this, that it found its home in such an unconventionalish way. And I thought that was so cool in parallel to the movie. And so I loved that and just wanted to throw that out there. But also another strength that I wanted to talk about, and I think it does go into your strength about Paul Giamatti a little bit, is that the dialogue and the script in this movie is fantastic. Yes, that was another one of mine. I have a couple strengths too, and that's one of mine, is that the dialogue, all the conversations feel so layered. Even when they're just talking about wine, it always feels like they're not just talking about wine. No, it all feels very flowy, very organic. It doesn't feel like anything that is heavily scripted. But it is a heavy, heavy dialogue movie. But what I liked about it is that it doesn't have to rely on anything flashy to be good. There's no big, heavy scenes. There's no big visuals. There's no big cinematography moments. There's nothing flashy at all about this movie. It feels very low budget. It feels like they were just driving along and they were finding places to stop and film and have conversations with each other. And I think the beauty of this movie too, is that you pretty much have four main characters in this movie and they are the driving force of this movie and the people you see quite constantly. There's little secondary characters that pop up, but they don't have that huge of an impact in this movie. And I think there's beauty in that too, that it doesn't have to rely on all these secondary characters or all these background characters because it doesn't matter. It's about these four main people and they're coming through middle age tale. And so although it is dialogue heavy and usually that's something that isn't super compelling or interesting to watch. Sometimes I think you think of some heavy dialogue films, some period pieces, things like that, that don't have that many visuals keeping with it and staying tuned in is sometimes a little difficult, I think, at least for us. But this one doesn't feel that way at all. I agree. I want to ask you a question. How did the wine make you feel? The fact that the entire movie is surrounded by wine, even though this movie could really be put anywhere. So I think it's a movie about wine that doesn't 
make wine. It makes wine the star of the show, but in a way where it's not like a let's get drunk kind of thing. You know, I don't know what I'm exactly trying to say, but I feel like you've seen a lot of movies that have to do with wine country or we watched that one movie recently with Maya Rudolph and it was about all those ladies going to Napa for a weekend. The one where Tina Fey was like the only good part of the movie. The, 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 Uh, Airbnb or whatever. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the type of movie you can put this one side to side with and say like wine was an avenue for these ladies to like get hammered and have a good time. Whereas it's like that in this movie, but it's much more about a passion for wine and an interest in wine and an education on wine and two characters being Miles and Maya connecting over their love of wine. And something I found interesting reading the behind the scenes facts and the trivia for this movie is how much the wine industry and wine in general grew after this movie. So there's a specific scene where Miles is talking about Pinot Noir and the color of it. And Pinot Noir wines rose by more than 20% over the 2004 to 2005 Christmas and New Year period compared to the previous year. And then a similar phenomenon was experienced in Merlot. British wine outlets. Yes, he's disparaging about Merlot and hates Merlot and sales dropped for Merlot after the film came out. That's amazing. It's amazing that this movie had that effect, especially because the only reason that you think that Merlot sucks is because Miles told you in the movie that Merlot sucks. Right. And Paul Giamatti went on record saying like, I don't know shit about wine. I didn't know anything about wine coming into this movie. So it's not like he's some super knowledgeable guy who's coming in. He just has a passion for this and likes talking about it. He's and not it's the great. Gordon Ramsay of wine. He's just some guy and the actor doesn't even really know. Yeah. So it's interesting. And I think that goes to show a lot of how wine was incorporated into this movie as a, almost a character and as a interest. And I think it grew a lot of people's intrigue over it because how many bachelor week movies have you seen that take place in Napa and how many do you see now? Even talking about going to Napa, like look at the hangover and look at El- Ed Helms's character being like, we're going to Napa Valley for the bachelor party. Like nobody does that. Nowadays, people do that more. And I wonder how much of an influence this movie played on that. But yeah, I think that's really fun that you bring that up and that question up. But let's go over to... I got, I got one more that I just want to say, and we don't really have to elaborate on it, but I do like that this movie always remains a comedy about two... I don't want to call them stupid, but I'll call them stupid. They're but knuckleheads. Yeah, it's it's still at its core a movie about two knuckleheads on a road trip. Yeah, who are pretty scummy and not great people. Yes, and I like that it it never loses the comedic factor even until the end when things should get serious it's still Paul Giamatti breaking into someone's house to get Jack's wallet back because he was trying to hook up with a married woman and it's still a zany scene where we see some full frontal man nudity and when that hits it's both simultaneously very dramatic because this is important because Jack's wedding ring is in his wallet but at the same time is ridiculous 
with how the scene plays out. Yeah, it's very silly. And this movie is a comedy, but it's not a traditional laugh out loud comedy. It's more of a situational, isn't that odd, isn't that funny kind of comedy. But it works really well. Isn't it funny that Jack breaks his nose and then (laughs) wants to say that it happened in a car accident. So they try and crash a car into a tree and miss the tree. I laughed really hard at that part. It's pretty good. Let's float over to weaknesses, though, so we can talk a little bit about that. And I will expand a little bit on what I was talking about earlier with Paul Giamatti and not my problems with him in this movie, but I guess it also contributes to the acting and why I think Thomas Hayden Church was a little bit better. My question is, why does Maya like this guy? What does she see in this guy that she's intrigued by? He is dismissive of her. He is not engaged in conversation with her. He's not very nice. He's not very lively. And then also, I think for most of the characters in this movie, besides maybe Maya and Stephanie, so I guess everybody (laughs) except for Maya and Stephanie, what a cast of unlikable people. That was my problem with this movie is that these two are scummy. And I think that If you go into that knowing that that is the case, that you could really like this movie. And I knew they were scummy the entire way, but I still just longed for something likable to happen. And they never redeemed themselves throughout the entire movie. They never got more likable. They never got nicer. They never got less self-centered. They were still just trash. (laughs) Like Jack goes back home. Well, Jack's the worst. Jack is absolutely the worst. He has this breakdown after he's had sex with two women while they've been off on this week because he left his wallet at the one woman's house, the scene that Sean was just talking about. And has this big emotional breakdown of I can't lose Christine, his fiance. I can't lose her, Miles. Please help me. But it's like, why? You just had sex with two other women. You came into this whole week saying you didn't care. And then he's going to fake that he got into a car accident after Stephanie, the girl he had been hooking up with, found out that he was getting married and then broke his nose. So you're going to fake that you got into a car accident to go home to your fiance. It's just all so scummy. And it's funny But at the same time, I wanted to like one of them, at least just one by the end of this movie. And I still left this movie with the same feelings about them. And for what I've harped on throughout this podcast of this being a middle age coming of age story, you would expect them to come out on the other end with something redeeming about them. And neither of them had that for me. That's fair. And I don't think you were going to find it with Jack, but with Miles, you might have. And at the beginning of your rant, you said, why does Maya like Miles? For me, I thought that they liked each other because of previous conversations that they had that were not in the movie. Once Miles and Jack end up at the hitching post where Maya works, Miles already knows a ton about Maya. Miles has already talked to her and already had conversations with her. This is his favorite place to go when he comes up to wine country. So I assume that they've had some type of good conversations because when we are first introduced to Maya, her and Miles seem to have a bit of a thing, just a connection between the characters. And even Jack points that out like, oh, you should definitely get with this chick. And Miles knows that 
Maya is married or thinks that she's married while Jack is letting him know that she's not married. But I still think Miles and Maya have a relationship that started before this movie. So that's where I give you some pushback on why would Maya like Miles? I still don't see it, but sure. I just think that maybe she really likes his book. Yeah, I don't think so because she hasn't read it yet. By the time that they are starting to see each other, he only gives it to her after a couple times seeing her when him and Jack are there. And so I just don't I don't get it because she is very well spoken. She's very passionate, interested in what she's talking about, genuinely interested in talking to both of them. Just nice, kind, has this air of approachability And he is none of those things. He's self-centered. He's soaking in his own misery. He's not inviting. He doesn't ask her questions about herself. And you don't think those people deserve love too? I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I don't know why somebody like her would be interested in somebody like Miles. No, I, I get that. That's fair. And... I guess I would take that as my weakness, too, because I didn't really have one for this movie. I thought it was actually really solid. It just wasn't something I loved. And that's my weakness is that it just didn't grab me. And I couldn't tell you why. Well, that being said, let's go into something else we didn't love and talk about dark places because we've talked about sideways for a little bit. So let's go into dark places and talk about the strengths of dark places first and give it the benefit of the doubt. And I think my only strength for this movie is Charlize Theron. And she is fun to watch. She's always good to watch. She always really gets into the development of her character, no matter how shittily it's written or how terrible the script is. She really is dedicated to it. She's a fun main character. And it's a shame because she is a bright spot in a very dull uninteresting script, terrible supporting actors, terrible storyline, terrible flow. Everything about this movie minus her is terrible. So that's not the strength I wrote down, but I do agree that that's a strength. Mine is that I love that this movie actually fit in the satanic panic that was going on in the 80s, which was something that happened in the 80s and appears in zero movies that take place in the 80s. So I really like the fact that they put this in there because it's something that historically happened. And the satanic panic goes into the movie because what we find out is that Charlize's character Libby, like Kim said, was the only survivor of this huge massacre. They pinned it on her brother because he was dabbling in satanic rituals and what we come to find out is that he's more or less just hanging out with the wrong people who are doing drugs and screaming hail satan and killing animals so sad it wasn't it wasn't great but i really like that they used it because like i said 80s movies never really have this at all and it happened and was very real and you can read many articles of the different things that happened in the 80s that surround the satanic devil worshiping that was huge at the time yeah it's interesting but in defense of that or i guess in opposition to that that is something that the book set up and not something that the movie did well i think that The part of it integrating into the book, I'm sure did really well, but the movie 
just made it seem weirdly unimportant for the storyline. It was like something that was there, but wasn't really fully integrated into the storyline because they were like, oh, yeah, your brother's Satanist, but never really chucked it up to like because he's doing this and this is what's going on and his girlfriend is doing this. It was never connected. It was just there. Like they never developed it at all or brought it into the storyline. It was so uninteresting. Agreed. I like that it was in there. That is my strength, which tells you what I actually think of this movie. (laughs) So let's flip over into weaknesses then and talk about it. I have a overarching weakness that this movie is just dull. It is silly almost because it is so dull. The ending is almost silly. The ending is so boring. It's so boring. It's so boring. So another thing I hated about this movie was because Libby doesn't really know exactly what happened that night and was just making assumptions that it was her brother because she saw she didn't see him and she was out in the field and people told her, oh, it's your brother because he's into worshiping Satan and all of this. What they did was they put in these little black and white flashbacks throughout the entire movie in the form of her nightmares or her remembering things. But those were so messy and I hated them. And I get that they weren't supposed to be super clear because they were just flash memories, right? They were just supposed to be things that she was remembering, but you're not seeing a whole story evolve in these flashbacks. But the way they were done, the camera was sideways. It was blurry. Everything was fast and on shaky cam. And I get they were trying to put it in her perspective, but it didn't help the person watching the movie to help develop what went on. It was just so messy and terrible and didn't add anything. Yeah, I would agree. There was one that was very memorable to me because I remember watching it and looking at the screen and thinking, I have no idea what I'm actually looking at. And it's Libby running out of the house, right? And it's like the camera moving back and forth like she's running. And she runs into, I would say, what is closely resembled as a chicken coop. And all of a sudden, a light comes towards her. But I'm like, I have no idea where we are. I don't know where that light's coming from. I don't actually know what is happening. And at that point, I was like, can we just go back to the story and her trying to figure out what happened this night? Because through most of the movie, that's the only thing that kept me engaged was trying to figure out what happened this night of the murders. And the worst part is when we figure it out, it's an hour and a half of them building up what happened on this night and it just doesn't live up at all not even close it's super dull so what happens at the end of this movie is that through flashbacks and through re-storytelling through christina Hendricks's character who is libby's mom when she's younger we find out that because they were really poor because there were debts that were unpaid libby and ben and michelle and debbie the kids the day kids their mom goes to this guy and is like i need help paying these debts and it's basically a kill tax and he will kill her for her life insurance. So then she can be wiped out debt free. Her kids can be wiped out debt free and live a fine life. So he comes that night to kill her, 
shoots her in the hallway. But then one of the daughters, Debbie, sees it and he shoots her. And then in that whole process, Ben and Deandra, who is Ben's Satanist girlfriend, who's high on drugs, is in another room with Michelle, one of the other sisters. And Deandra is mad that Michelle has been talking shit about Ben and accusing them of stuff at school. So Deandra strangles her and kills her. And that's how they all die. And Libby runs away into the shed and Ben disappears with Deandra and then is later put in jail because of Libby's testimony that Ben had killed them. And Ben does not say anything because Deandra is pregnant and is having their baby. And so he wants to protect her and their unborn child and not put Deandra in jail. So is wrongfully convicted, but also doesn't sign up for any appeals or anything like that through his entire prison sentence. So then Libby, as an adult, finds this out, finds Deandra and Deandra and her daughter try to kill Libby. Which makes no sense. I don't know why they did that. Because they were afraid that Libby would discover the truth because she finds her mother's cross hanging in Deandra's bathroom and then puts it all together and connects the dots. But it's just a really messy and unfulfilling end. And I'm wondering how it hits in the book and if it hits a little bit better. But overall, the ending of this movie was just annoying. And the whole lead up to it was annoying. There was a period of time where Libby was getting introduced to the Kill Club and we were trying to figure out some of her trauma that was really interesting and had a really promising start. And then after that, I would say the last probably hour and a half of the movie was really dull and uninteresting. I was still trying to figure out who really did it towards the end of the movie because it almost played a little bit like a whodunit because as the story goes, we find out that Ben had more and more people that wanted to get him or get rid of him because he had some sexual assault against young girls who just kissed him and then bragged about doing more. And then their parents found out and it could have been those kids' parents. It could have been his father. It could have been Trey, who was another one of the Satanists that he hung out with. And I was open to so many possibilities just for them to pretty much say, oh yeah, it was just some other guy that came in and did it. And it was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I wouldn't classify it as a whodunit because it's not set up in that way because it's much darker. But I think that you're very right and it could have been a bunch of different people. And then it turned out to be partially someone who had basically nothing to do with this story. Yeah, and I absolutely hated that. Let's get into little details that made a big difference and talk about both of these movies. I don't have anything for dark places. I couldn't find anything at all. And I hate doing that, but I really dug deep and I really tried and I just couldn't find anything. So you take it away with yours. I couldn't find anything either. So I just found a fun fact on the IMDb page and it's that the movie was released on Charlize's 40th birthday. Happy birthday, Charlize. So how about your shitty childhood? Here's a (laughs) shitty movie. Pretty much. Not really detailed at all in this movie. No details. So then let's go over to a movie that probably has more little details and talk to me about your little detail for Sideways. The score, clearly how jazzy it was all over the place. I fucking loved it. Not an Oscar nominated score, though. I know, but it was unique. And I think that was the important part for this. That's fun. Yeah, it was very 
whimsical and very goofball-ish, if that makes sense. Yeah, usually when you think of great scores, it's these big pieces of music with all of these instruments. And this one was just so different that it was just like being in a jazz club and it made the idea of wine even better. Agreed. And my little detail also has to do with wine, as does much of this movie. And this is a little detail that's both related to this movie and also a little bit personal. So there is a scene in this movie where they go to this winery and it is fun fact. Sean just finished his glass of wine. So he he won. Um, So there is this scene when they go to this winery and I would equate it to like the Gallo family of wineries. There's just buses of people there. There's a ton of people. And Miles is like, I don't want to go to this one because I think it's just super popular and super overrated and a ton of people go there. So they go to this winery and he steps outside and he finds out his book is not being published. And he has that conversation with his agent. And then he comes in and he's at the tasting bar and he tells the guy who's handing out tastings, like, hit me with one of those. And he pours him a little tasting. I love this. And he slams it back. And then he asks the bartender again, hit me with another one. And he goes, "Okay," And he slams it back. And then he asks the bartender, he said, hey, can I just get a full pour here, bud? Like here, I'll give you money, whatever. And he's like, sir, this is a tasting room. We don't give glasses. If you want to buy a bottle of wine, you can take it and drink it outside. And he's like, just give me like a fucking bottle of wine or whatever. And tries to pour it in the glass. And the guy is like, sir, you can't do that. So if you're familiar with wineries or wine tastings, what they have is called a dump bucket. And it's basically if you taste a wine and you don't like it, you pour it in this giant bucket that just becomes a bunch of different wines poured together at the end of the day. So he takes the dump bucket and just drinks it, but pours it all over his entire body. And I just loved that little detail because that just shows how much distress he was in that throughout this entire movie, there's wines he's tasting where he's like, "Ugh, that's gross. That's disgusting. And very particular about what he's tasting that never in his life would he drink out of a dump bucket of wine. And it just goes to show like how much he was struggling in that moment. I love this. And I think relating it to this personal experience I talk about in college, my friends and I went to a senior wine tasting. So it was only for graduating seniors. And it was a very sophisticated event where you went and you tasted some wines and they paired it with some cheeses. And we might've all had like a little bit of a drinking problem in college because we weren't there to taste the wines. We were there to drink the free wine that was being offered to us. And so at one point in time, one of my friends, shout out Eli, turned to the table next to us where we had some friends and asked them, hey, are you guys drinking out of your dump bucket? And they were like, what are you talking about? No. And he goes, can we have it? (laughs) So we took the other table's dump bucket because clearly we didn't have one. We weren't dumping out any wine. So took the other table's dump bucket And started dishing out glasses to all of Of, the people at our table, to all these mixed red and white wines from the entire evening. 
And we just got hammered at this event. And then I remember it was in like February or something. It was super cold. And one of my friends had been renting a convertible because his car was in the shop. So we drove. So we drove back to our houses with the top down in February. And one of my sorority sisters the next day goes, did I see you at like 9 p.m. in a convertible last night? (laughs) And I was like, yes. So that was, you know, an epitome of my rock bottom. So you have a dumb bucket story, too. (laughs) Just like just like Miles does. Yes. Miles and I share a dump bucket story, but you have to be real desperate to get into a dump bucket. And that's my whole point with this little detail is that it clearly showed his amount of desperation for this dump bucket. So I just wanted to throw that in there because it's one of my favorite stories ever and probably one of the grossest things. And the wine sommelier or whoever was leading the tasting just looked at us like we were absolute trash and we did not care at all. So fun times. So on that note, I think we're ready to reveal the winner of this matchup. And it should be a pretty self-explanatory one, but we are going to do a three, two, one countdown like always anyways. So on the count of three, three, two, one. Sideways. Sideways and its dump bucket moves on to the next round. And Kim did not finish her wine. Kim did not finish her wine. I've been doing a lot of talking, so I'll finish it after we conclude this podcast. But Sideways does move on to the next round. We've had both of our one seeds move on. No big shakeup so far. So we'll see how that goes. So we have next week's podcasts on Monday and Friday, and that will close out all of our first rounds. So our next one will air on Monday, October 26th. And that will be between Kiss the Girls, which is our 16th seed versus The Hate You Give, which is our first seed. So please go ahead and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at The Cine Matchups. You can check out your bracket or just in general, if you haven't filled out a bracket, you can check out the bracket and how it's shaking up on challenge.com slash The Cine Matchups and see how that's going. Our podcasts air Monday and Friday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Anchor, and Breaker. So go and check out our previous podcasts. We got a lot of them up from this bracket challenge so far. We've been having a lot of fun with this. So go ahead and check it out before we close out our first round next week. So thank you guys so much for listening. And for this week for the Cinema Matchups, we are Kim Kohler and Sean Rodenberg, and we will see you next time. 